1: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's June 20th, 1970. Twelve year old Robin Samso and her friend are hanging out on the beach in their California town. Robin, blonde and pretty, is doing cartwheels before her ballet lesson that afternoon. Watching them is a man with a camera. He is tall and clean-shaven with unkempt hair. After some time, he decides to approach them. He says he is participating in a photography contest and asks them for a photo. Robin agrees. But something about the man isn't quite right. A neighbor recognizes the girls at the beach and asks them if everything is okay. And the man disappears like a puff of smoke. Once he is gone, Robin gets back on her bicycle and heads over to her ballet class, alone.
2: This photographer was a suspect right away because 45 minutes later, Robin disappeared and was never seen again.
1: 12 days later, a park ranger is working on clearing an area in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Southern California when he comes across something odd. He sees bones. But they are definitely not animal bones. He then finds something shocking. It's a body, and removed from the rest of the body, a head. The park ranger calls his dispatcher, who notifies the police. Robin has been found, or at least what's left of her. Pieces of her hands and feet are missing, as are some of her teeth. Robin's friend tells authorities about the man at the beach and a sketch of the stranger gets circulated. Almost immediately, the man is recognized by his parole officer.
2: And he called detectives and said, you guys need to check out Rodney Alcala. It looks like him.
1: This man had been arrested for assaulting a minor before, more than once. But the man also looked familiar to many around the nation because in between his various murders... Arrests, jail time, and releases. Rodney Alcala had time to appear on a dating show.
0: Well, well let's see. Baxter number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome.
3: When I found that he was a serial killer, it was like bing, and it just all came together. Like a slap in the face.
1: As the layers of his case unfolded, police discovered that Robin Samso was far from the last murder he would be tied to. And as technology got better, police would find even more missing women who had lost their lives to the dating game killer.
0: Essentially, the nature of Alcalde's crimes were that he would present himself to women, often through an alias, as a photographer. He would basically convince people that he was doing a photo shoot, that they were a desirable part of the photo shoot. He would bring them to the photo shoot, and then he would rape, torture, and kill them.
1: This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Rodney Alcala was born in San Antonio, Texas on August 23rd, 1943. When he was eight, Alcala's grandmother decided she wanted to live out the rest of her days in Mexico, so the family moved south of the U.S. border. For a time, Alcala had a normal and somewhat happy childhood, until his father abandoned him. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley reflects on the impact this must have had on young
4: Alcala. The father abandons the family at that point in time and then goes back to to live in the U.S., uh, and I think that's, that's quite a significant thing. I think that Alcala's relationship with his father was quite an important one to him. And I, I think that's something that stayed with Alcala throughout his life. And I think it does feed into his offending behavior.
1: Alcala's mother followed suit and took her four children to Los Angeles. There, things seemed to go well for the teenage Alcala, says author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel.
5: He's popular, he's on the yearbook committee, he plays the piano, he runs for the school, he has girlfriends, he's on the surface an all-American or all-Mexican-American boy.
1: Life was good for Alcala. Though his father had left them, the family got back in touch and were close once again. After graduating from high school, the handsome and long-haired young man joined the army. Then... A year into his service, a death in the family devastated Alcala.
4: Whilst he's in the army, he has a a nervous breakdown, and and this is after his, his father has died.
1: Alcala suddenly appeared at his mother's house while he was supposed to be at the army base. He'd hitchhiked across the country to see her, without permission.
4: And he's given a medical discharge from the army because he has this nervous breakdown. And then he kind of goes off the the radar for a while. So I think this is the the period in which he starts perhaps fantasizing. His, His offending starts to take shape in his mind, if not in reality.
6: From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. comes SpyCast. Every week, eavesdrop on the spy museum's experts as they sit down with some of the most interesting people who live and work in the world of global espionage. This includes intelligence professionals, spies, leaguers, defectors, agency directors, historians, journalists, and other agents of all shapes and sizes. Check out a new SpyCast every Thursday. And after you listen to this week's episode, there are hundreds of episodes in the catalog to choose from. Discover the podcasts that real spies listen to. Over half of SpyCast's millions of listeners have been in the business. They listen to SpyCast on their way to work in Washington, London, Langley, Fort Meade, the Pentagon, and even Moscow and Beijing. SpyCast is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Spotify, Audioboom, Apple Podcasts, or go to spymuseum.org and listen from the museum's website. SpyCast, you never know who's listening.
1: In September 1968, Alcala committed his first known crime. He lured an eight-year-old girl into his Hollywood home, raped her, and left her for dead. Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy recalls what happened.
2: This is the worst nightmare for any parent. Rodney Alcala and people like him are the reason why you can't send your kids walking to school alone. He kidnaps her, he rapes her. A good Samaritan sees her get into his car and it doesn't look right. And he follows the car to the house and it doesn't look right. Now this is 1968, so it's long before cell phones. He finds a a payphone calls it in the police get there knocking the door Rodney shows up uh, naked and says hey I'll be right with you
1: but 25 year old Alcala didn't plan on getting caught after a few minutes police lost patience and kicked in the door but Alcala had already escaped and left behind him a ghastly scene There was a small body on the floor, surrounded by a lot of blood. Next to the young girl sat the weapon Alcala had used to strangle her, a metal rod. Now the officer on the scene had to decide whether to save the little girl or go after Alcala.
2: He runs out the back naked, okay, and the police officer who's by himself. looks down and it's one of those situations where it's save this bleeding little girl on the floor who's unconscious and very close to death she was in a coma for 33 days after this happened so it's save the little girl or catch the bad guy right out of the back and he, uh, he did the right thing he saved the little girl but that meant Alcala got away
1: it was a depraved and violent attack on a child that seemingly came out of nowhere Alcala didn't have any history of anger towards women or abuse in childhood that is common with child abusers. So, where did this come from?
4: Well, if if I was to to describe Alcala with three words, it would be me, me, me. This man is an absolute narcissist, and and he doesn't care about the rights or the feelings of other people. Uh, And all of his behavior revolves around him. So he's somebody who was only gonna ever pursue his own desires, and unfortunately, this ended up in a lot of people losing their lives. Officers searched Alcala's
1: deserted apartment and found many disturbing photos of young girls. They also found an ID card. But Alcala was already far away from his crimes, 3,000 miles across the USA
5: in New York. He does not hang around. He decides to leave Los Angeles and turns up in New York, where he enlists in the New York Film School under the name of John Berger,
4: this is quite a cunning way of both avoiding detection and of starting to build up these, these new personas, these new characters to present to, to the people that he comes into contact with. So he's somebody who can put on and shed identities just like a snake. Uh, and that's how i describe Alcala. He's constantly shedding his skin and reinventing himself.
1: With his new alias, John Berger, Alcala lived a bohemian New York lifestyle and even studied film under renowned filmmaker Roman Polanski. He also got a summer job at an all-girls summer camp in New Hampshire. The police, though, were catching up. After Alcala fled Los Angeles, he was added to the FBI's nationwide 10 Most Wanted list. His face was out there, and it was only a matter of time before someone recognized him.
2: So two of these girls go to the post office to mail a letter, and they see Rodney Alcala's picture under the name of, you know, Rodney Alcala. And they're like, hey, that's Mr. Berger. He works at the camp. So that's how he got caught. They extradite him back to California, and they try him for the kidnapping.
1: The family of the young girl he attacked didn't want to participate in the trial. And so the prosecution was forced to let Alcala take a lesser plea. But unbelievably, in August 1974, after serving less than three years, Alcalo was freed. He returned to society as if he had never done anything at all.
2: I have no idea what the parole board was thinking. I, they're looking at this guy. He kidnapped raped and almost murdered an 8-year-old little girl who was a stranger. wasn't even somebody that lived in his house. This was a girl walking down the street. That is as predatory, pathological, and psychotic as you can possibly get. And they released him after 34 months. He had a life sentence. They released him after 34 months.
1: In the 1970s, there was an emphasis in prisons on rehabilitation. With his ability to change his persona on a whim, Rodney Alcalo was the perfect person to game the system. His freedom, however, didn't last long. Just two months after his release, Alcala was arrested for giving drugs to a minor.
5: He leaves state custody in August. In October, he kidnaps a 13-year-old and provides her with marijuana. And he's convicted of breaking his parole and selling drugs to a minor. He goes back to jail
1: Again, Alcala's stay in prison was brief. After two and a half years, authorities released him on parole after declaring him reformed. He even charmed his parole officer into allowing him to head back to New York in the summer of 1977.
2: People like Rodney Alcala, when they get out, they are going to kill other people. Sex offenders do not get better. OK, all the treatment in the world does not fix sex offenders. So if you release violent sex offenders like Rodney Alcala, at the very least, they're going to commit additional rapes or child molestations.
1: Alcala's stint in New York was short, but it would be a stay that became notorious more than 30 years later. In July 1977, sex offender Rodney Alcala had just been released from prison for a second time and was allowed to leave L.A. to fly to New York. And he would make a lasting impact on the city.
5: Alcala is one of those killers who believed he was cleverer. He could hide in plain sight. I'm John Berger in New York. I'm an ordinary, humble man in Los Angeles. I couldn't possibly be dangerous. He is, in some respects, even more dangerous. Like a perfectly camouflaged snake that you tread on by accident because you don't realize it's there.
1: He met 23-year-old Ellen Hover, the daughter of wealthy nightclub owners. She disappeared from her apartment one day in July. And even with a $100,000 reward, she wasn't found for another year. Her decomposed remains were found on the Rockefeller estate in Westchester County, New York. Her murderer, meanwhile, wouldn't be found for another 34 years. At that point, he was back in Southern California. Over the next three years, Alcala photographed other young women who were later found murdered in similar ways. 18-year-old Jill Barkham, who was found in a Los Angeles ravine. 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead, found strangled in her apartment.
2: There was Charlotte Lamb, who was another woman who had moved here from the Midwest. She was found in a laundry room in an apartment complex in the city of El Segundo. And one of the things that was consistent with all of Rodney Alcala's rapes and murders is that his semen was located in virtually every inch of the body of these poor women. So these were long, ongoing, torturous murders and rapes.
1: By the summer of 1979, Alcala was traveling all over the country, but mostly made his home in California. The 35-year-old was working as a freelance photographer after some failed attempts at other jobs. His photography was a convenient tool for meeting people. It also allowed him to commit murders quietly. Alcala convinced 21-year-old Jill Parenteau to let him take pictures of her. On June 14th, she was found dead in her Burbank apartment, strangled and nude, her body posed as if for a photograph. Six days later, Alcala would do something that would draw attention to him. He spotted 12-year-old Robin Samso hanging out at Huntington Beach with her friend. Samso caught his eye. She was a pretty girl, and she was without parental supervision. Here's Orange County Deputy D.A. Matt Murphy.
2: He approached Robin and her friend, who was also 12 years old, They were sunbathing uh, on Huntington Beach right before Robin's ballet lesson. And he said, hey, uh, I'm in a photography contest. Will you allow me to take your picture? This photographer was a suspect right away because 45 minutes later, Robin disappeared and was never seen again.
1: Robin parted ways with Alcala and her friend and headed on her bike to dance class. That was the last anyone saw of her. Police officer Steve Mack remembers the next morning when he got the briefing.
7: I'd only been with the city of Huntington Beach for a year. We go to briefings in the morning and they give us any crimes that have occurred during the evening that we should be on the lookout for. And that morning, on the 21st, they told us of Robin's disappearance and the description of the bicycle that she was riding at the time of her disappearance.
1: Robin Samso's disappearance devastated Orange County the community was known for being peaceful.
7: We get uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people coming to our beach annually uh, because of its serenity and beauty. They put out a press release and they talked to one of uh, Robin's friends that she was with the day before and obtained a composite of a person that had been taking photographs of them at the beach. As patrol officers, We began scouring the alleys and behind grocery stores and and shopping centers, looking to see if the bicycle had been discarded. For probably the next two weeks, the alleys and behind shopping centers were probably some of the safest places because even though they'd been checked at 10 o'clock in the morning, somebody was probably driving by at two o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody wanted to find that bicycle.
1: Robin's friend gave a description of the man they'd encountered. He had long, dark hair, and had honed in on us like a shark in the water. The sketch went out on local television, and it looked remarkably similar to an already known child molester, says Deputy DA Matt Murphy.
2: This was a big deal media-wise because we had a missing 12-year-old girl, and I'll call his parole officer saw the composite on TV, and he called detectives and said, you guys need to check out Rodney Alcala. It looks like him. It sounds like him. Um, You got to look at Rodney Alcala. And like 15 minutes after they received that phone call, one of the cops is home, turns on the TV, and sees Alcala on the dating game.
0: Let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful
7: photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13,
0: fully developed. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome.
1: Remarkably, Alcala had appeared as himself on the television show The Dating Game. It was a reality game show where women pick an eligible bachelor without seeing their faces. The episode was recorded 10 months earlier in September 1978. Number
0: one, would you say hello to Cheryl, please? We're going to have a great time together, Cheryl. Okay. And the
7: host uh, introduced the bachelors, and bachelor number one was Rodney Alcala. Uh, The detective frantically tried to call the police department and let other detectives know that he was on television so that they could turn it on and see him.
1: Former FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon speaks about how strange it was for Alcala to appear on television.
8: Most serial killers or killers in general want to avoid detection, want to avoid publicity, want to avoid the spotlight. And this guy was actually seeking it out, which is, you know, an indication of of his personality.
1: One of the other bachelors on the show with Alcala was actor Jed Mills.
8: The
3: vibes I got from him while we were doing the show and backstage and even during the actual filming were not good vibes. Uh, There was something wrong with this guy.
1: Jed met Alcala backstage before the episode was recorded and had a quick conversation.
3: Didn't talk much. The other guy and I were getting along very nicely. and We were talking about this and that. And uh, every now and then, this this
1: creepy guy would say something.
3: Like he had an attitude because he knew better than everybody
1: else. He may have been cold to the other contestants, but when cameras began rolling, Alcalo was charismatic and appealing. I am serving you for dinner.
3: Oh.
2: <laughs>
1: what
3: are you called, and what do you look like?
0: I'm called the banana, and I look really good. <laughs>
1: Well, I like bananas, so I'll
0: take one. Number
2: one. That's your number one.
1: All right. Alcala won the date using his magnetism, but inside, he was hiding a dark history. Soon, police would find out contestant number one was a serial killer.
4: He's saying all of these awfully cheesy things and, and the audience are laughing along, but that this is a man who's killed. This is a man who, who is going to kill again. And I think that the lady that, that was going to have the date with him was lucky to escape with her life because she went and chatted to him backstage just before they were about to go on the date and picked up on the fact there was something a little bit creepy about him and decided not to go through with that date. And I think that's probably the best decision she ever made.
3: She did not go out with him. Because he was too creepy. She did not keep the date. So even though he won, she refused to go on a date with him.
1: Here's author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel.
5: Now, whether Alcalá took that as a rejection, which I think is possible, it was no doubt an accelerant to his later killings. If you have this narcissistic character and suddenly someone turns him down... I think he takes his revenge on women in general. Women as a group. So anyone becomes fair prey.
1: That fair prey included 12-year-old Robin Samso. A week after she disappeared from Huntington Beach, Robin Samso's body was found in the Angeles National Forest.
7: Robin's body was discovered 12 days after her disappearance up in an area called Chantry Flats. Uh, it was her remains. Her what? Her whole body wasn't found. Um, oddly enough, a forest ranger had seen Alcala, who we refer to as the monster. The family prefers that his name never be used, uh, dragging a blonde little girl into the uh, to the woods. And then it was twelve days later they were doing some fire prevention cleanout up in the area, and they came across some uh, human bones.
1: It was heartbreaking news for Robin's family and friends. California wanted justice. Police had a number one suspect, one with a history of absconding. Authorities needed to find Rodney Alcala and fast.
7: It turns to a homicide investigation immediately, and the detectives ramp up their investigation uh, and work it hard and ultimately... Uh, Alcala is arrested on uh, July 24th.
1: Alcala was staying with his mother in Monterey Park, 40 miles north of Huntington Beach. Police arrested him and searched the house and found something that would unearth his secret murderous history.
7: As luck would have it on the day that Alcala was arrested, they did a search warrant at his house, and one of the detectives saw a receipt for a storage facility in uh, the Seattle area. When we got into his storage locker, immediately
2: after, uh, after he was identified and arrested, there's thousands of photographs of young women and young boys and adult women, young girls, um, that to this day, we've been unable to identify many of them. So being alone in the company of Rodney Alcala, knowing what he did to Robin Samso, we always suspected that there were more victims. We just didn't know who they were and couldn't prove it.
1: The photos in the storage locker were of young girls, grown women, and there were pictures of boys, too. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the photos showed
4: a lot about how Alcala viewed those around him. So he's targeting prepubescent girls, he's targeting women, and sometimes he's taking pictures of, of young boys. But I think we shouldn't look at the differences between his victims, we need to look at what they've all got in common. And they, they've all got in common a particular vulnerability, something that he sees as a weakness, something that he can prey on. So that's what he's looking for and it doesn't really matter to him who he sees that in.
1: From the poses in the photographs, it appeared Alcala persuaded his subjects to willingly pose for him. Former FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon says, this appeal is not uncommon among serial murderers. Alcala
8: is one of those strange but not uncommon serial killers who has a high IQ, is fairly good looking by objective standards. Um, And we've seen this before with people like Ted Bundy and others where, you know, they could probably, you know, attract women themselves and and get into relationships with with women in a normal relationship and stuff. But for some reason, there's something very wrong in their minds and that they then get involved with women and then have that sexual relationship and then end up killing them.
1: Among the hundreds of photographs were some familiar faces, women who had been murdered and whose murders were unsolved. Years later, police would be able to connect some of these murders to Alcala. They included four women out of LA County.
2: There was Jill Barkham, who was found on a fire road up in the mountains above Hollywood. There was Georgia Wickstead, who was a young woman who just moved into her own apartment in Malibu. And then we had Jill Parenta who lived in uh, Burbank.
1: Over the years, Alcala developed a familiar M.O., says forensic psychologist Rex Bieber.
0: He would kill very often by strangulation, but before ultimately killing somebody, he would strangle them to the point of near death and then allow them to be revived. Strangle them to the point of death, allow them to be returned alive, and then finally, at some point, kill them. This is a man who got his sexual excitement and arousal from being right there at the precipice of life and death. He needs to see the fire of terror in the woman's eyes as he's on the verge of snuffing out her soul uh, for him to be aroused.
1: Another woman in the photographs was Charlotte Lamb, who just moved to LA from the Midwest. She was found in 1977 strangled in the laundry room of her apartment complex.
4: Alcala is somebody who knows what his victims want to hear. When he comes across young women, he knows that he needs to, to appeal to their, their better natures and to compliment them, and tell them how pretty they are, that they could be models, that he's a photographer who can make all of this happen for them. And, and he knows how to sound genuine. So he's a very accomplished predator. He, he sniffs out his prey, identifies their vulnerabilities and moves in for the kill. Police found
1: even more evidence in the storage unit. Along with the photographs, There was a red silk pouch inside were various pieces of jewelry
2: on the serial killers especially the rapists they'll keep a little keepsake they'll keep a trophy and we had a silk pouch with all kinds of unidentified jewelry in there um stuff that we still to this day have no idea where it came from or who the jewelry
7: belonged to they'll look at the trophy that they kept in this case jewelry and they can relive that crime by looking at this piece of jewelry. The monster was a sexually sadistic serial killer. Uh, He literally fantasized about these cases and relived them in his mind when he would look at these uh, items of jewelry, these trophies.
1: There was one particular item that gave investigators their biggest break to date.
7: One of the pairs of earrings in there were gold ball earrings that Robin's mother identified as the ones Robin was wearing.
1: It was this evidence that helped convince a jury, but it wouldn't be enough. In June 1980, Rodney Alcala was put on trial for the murder of 12-year-old Robin Samso. With some of Robin's jewelry in his possession, he was found guilty and was sentenced to death. But this was only the first of many trials to come. In 1984, the California Supreme Court overturned his conviction. It ruled that the jury should not have been informed of Alcala's history of child abuse, so it wasn't a fair trial. The decision was devastating to Robin's family.
7: I think for everyone involved in law enforcement, it's always frustrating when a convicted murderer has his sentence overturned. But it was first overturned based on the fact that improper evidence was introduced at the penalty phase. While we suspected that Robin had been sexually assaulted, there was no physical evidence to it at all.
1: Alcala remained in custody. At a second trial, Alcala was once again found guilty of Robin Samso's murder. He was again sentenced to death. But once more, the conviction was overturned, almost 20 years later, in April 2001.
7: The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Felt that the defense didn't give him adequate uh, protection and that they should have gone to the crime scene where the body was discovered, and for that reason it was overturned.
1: Yet again, Alcala remained on remand while authorities considered whether to try him for the murder for a third time.
2: The tough part about that and what nobody thinks about is there's a victim's family involved in this, and Robin Samso had a mother who loved her, And she had brothers who loved her, and she had friends who loved her. And every time the case gets reversed, you have to drag the family through this, and they have to go through the process again. I don't think it's a stretch to say this ruined the life of uh, of this, this girl's poor mother.
1: The overturned convictions meant that technology had time to advance. It was 2001... And DNA evidence and testing was far enough along that law enforcement might be able to prove Alcala's ties to other victims. Homicide detective Steve Mack took this opportunity to submit some of the evidence to a lab.
7: I obtained court orders uh, with the assistant of Matt Murphy from the district attorney's office to get certain pieces of evidence out of court evidence to have resubmitted for DNA testing. In the 1980s, when these trials were taking place, nobody had ever heard of DNA. Now there had been advancements, which even since that time have been further advanced.
1: In revisiting post-mortem reports, investigators found that Alcala was likely responsible for more deaths than just Robin Samso's. They were able to tie his DNA to the murders of Jill Barkham, Jill Parento, Georgia Wickstead, and Charlotte Lamb who all had been killed between 1977 and 1979. Parento had been found just days before Samso disappeared. The job of prosecuting the now 58-year-old Alcala fell to Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy. Murphy was determined to make sure Alcala paid for all of the lives he had taken.
2: There's no free murders. If somebody kills 10 people and there's an 11th out there that's really hard, we don't give them a freebie and just go with the 10. We hold them accountable for every single person they kill. And it, it's more work for the prosecution, uh, it's more work for the police, but to a man and woman, the police who we have worked up on this, they, they understand um, people are happy to do the work if we can bring justice to the families. So it's everyone that we can get them on, we're going to try them on.
1: Rodney Alcala's new trial was set for January 11th, 2010. Alcala, though, had one more trick up his sleeve. He decided to proceed pro se, representing himself.
4: Alcala decides to represent himself at, at trial, and there's an old saying that says anyone who chooses to represent themselves has a fool for a client, and that's very true in, in this case. And, and he's not just a fool, he's an a absolute narcissist as well.
8: He wanted to be up there in the spotlight and he wanted to tell his side of the story because he thought he was the smartest guy in the room.
1: The now 66-year-old believed there was only one person in the world who could do a decent job of defending him, and that man was himself. He was facing a formidable prosecution team of Gina Satriano and Orange County Deputy DA Matt Murphy.
7: Matt Murphy is a prosecutorial genius. Uh, he's got the the charm and the wit to draw a jury in and control them in the palm of his hand. He knows what to say and when to say it for its maximum effect. I couldn't have asked for a better prosecutor in this case. It's kind of this a very surreal process,
2: but you actually kind of get to know the guy, you know it's like like you would a lawyer. You spend hours together sitting next to each other. You're working out complex evidentiary things and figuring out what the questionnaires are going to contain. And just like you get to know a lawyer, here was Rodney Alcala. It was, um, it was very dark, but also fascinating. Uh, maybe I'm twisted, but it was, it was interesting.
1: Murphy would have to respect Alcala as he would any other defense attorney. But he was really facing a serial killer.
2: As a professional, you've got to deal with them, and you've got to engage them in conversation, and you've got to talk to them. And what I saw when I dealt with him is I could see how every one of these young women would get in the car because he was so intelligent. He was a handsome guy, not by the time we got to him, but back then, you know, all of that. You could see how this very intelligent, very charming, very handsome guy could lure these women into positions of vulnerability where he could rape them and murder them.
1: To observers, it was surreal. Alcala would regularly ask himself questions, speaking in a slightly lower voice when acting as the attorney. He was allowed to cross-examine witnesses and speak about courtroom tactics. It was especially cruel when Alcala spent a lot of time questioning Robin Samso's mother.
2: This woman has been, her credibility is questioned. And, you know, and here the third time around... Rodney Alcala is representing himself. So she's getting
7: cross-examined by the murderer of her daughter, who's calling her a liar. I mean, imagine that. To watch him cross-examine Robin's mother and get within feet of her and ask her personal questions really made me angry that he should be allowed to be that close. I think the court should have ruled that if you want to talk to her, you want to cross-examine her, that you need to remain in your chair and sitting at the council table. It got real frustrating for me that he was allowed to do that. Again, in my mind, he's reliving uh, that incident through his questions of Robin's mother.
1: Alcala didn't seem to offer any defense to the four new murder charges against him. However, he was adamant that he didn't murder Robin Samso. Sitting in the gallery was now retired officer Steve Mack.
7: I sat with the family through a lot of the trial. uh, And I would speak to them before we went into court and and afterwards. And every now and then I would talk to Matt Murphy regarding the, the tactics of the trial. But since I wasn't actually participating, I tried to stay out of that aspect of it.
1: The prosecution was prepared. They were armed with new evidence about another pair of earrings found in Alcala's storage locker. Back in 1979, Alcala claimed they were his. DNA evidence was about to prove Alcala a liar. They belonged to another one of his victims, Charlotte Lamb.
2: So when we're in that courtroom, it's almost like Charlotte Lamb is whispering from the grave to our jury, Robin's mother was right. Rodney Alcala keeps earrings. You know, I mean, it was the most powerful evidence you you could ever hope. And just... This tiny little piece of DNA that sat there for decades and, you know, technology caught up to it, thank God. And that was uh, that was sort of an emotional part of the trial, you know, when the jury got to realize that Robin's mother, after all of these years and after all of these cross-examinations, was conclusively proven to be right by the DNA of Charlotte Lamb on another earring found in the exact same pouch as the ones that Robin was wearing that day.
1: Linking the murder of Charlotte Lamb to the murder of Robin Samso was the final nail in the coffin for Rodney Alcala. On February twenty-fifth, twenty ten, the jury reached a verdict on all five murder charges.
2: Three of those cases we had very strong DNA, but on Jill Parento, it was a it was a tougher case. But we had a fortunately we had a great jury, and we had Francisco Bursano as our judge. So. They did the right thing, and they they convicted on all of the murders on Robin, on Jill Barkham, on um, Georgia Wixstead all of them. So he was he was held accountable for every one of those young women.
1: It had taken almost forty years, but on March thirtieth, twenty ten, Rodney Alcala was sentenced to death for a third time. It would be the final time.
8: This guy just thought. You know, nothing could touch him, and he was the smartest guy in the room, and as long as he could talk, he would get away with it. Ultimately, he was proven wrong.
7: When the verdict came back, it came back as I expected that it was, but it's still a feeling of elation that this guy lost his third attempt at freedom.
1: Meanwhile, more killings were about to come to light. In 2011, Alcala was charged with two murders in New York Cornelia Crilly and Ellen Hover. This was during the time he was going by the name John Berger. To avoid another trial, Alcala pleaded guilty to both New York murders, adding another 25 years to his sentence. In 2010, more than 100 of Alcala's photographs were released into the public domain. As a result, Alcala has since been charged with killing a 28-year-old woman in Wyoming in 1977. He's also suspected of killing other women in Washington State, New Hampshire, and Arizona.
2: Given the volume of the photographs, um, you know, we always knew that uh, we had other victims. We just, we didn't know who they were.
1: Many of the photographs found in the locker remained a mystery. Some were too graphic to be released meaning many of the women will remain unaccounted for.
0: Alcala may be the most dangerous of all the killers uh, that have ever been caught, because while he was only charged with a relatively small number of murders, the number of pictures he had means that he may have killed in excess
1: of 100 people. Alcala was forced to pay for some crimes, but for the families of the deceased, The pain of losing a loved one is a punishment that lasts forever.
7: I don't think Robin's family is ever going to be at peace. They had their 12-year-old sister kidnapped and brutally murdered in the mountains of Los Angeles County. They live with that every day when they look at her photographs that they have on their shelves. It tormented them then, and when people bring it up today, uh, it's further torment for them. So I don't think they'll ever be at peace. They'll certainly be elated the day he dies. But at peace, I think it, they're just dealing with it.
1: What Makes a Killer is an audio boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Notoso. This series is produced by audio booms Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kreggi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1 800 656 HOPE. That's 1 800 656 4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we would love for you to leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... When a young girl disappeared from a London neighborhood, the city was clamoring to find out what happened. No one knew that the perpetrator was right in front of them and right in her family.
8: Stewart's behavior throughout this interview is inconsistent with somebody who is in turmoil, worried, you know, anxious about Tia Sharp being missing. His body language is far too animated he's shrugging his shoulders a lot. People shrug their shoulders when they're saying, I don't know. But he's giving supposedly truthful statements and saying, I don't know.